You are listening to The Hublic Sphere, a podcast created by early career researchers at the Trinity Longroom Hub. Our ethos is to interject the discussions we have in academia into the public sphere, asking what arts and humanities research can contribute to broader public knowledge. For season two, we discuss one general theme, connection. Hello and welcome to the final episode of season two of The Hublic Sphere. I'm Connor Brennan, a PhD researcher in comparative literature at Trinity College Dublin. The Polish writer Olga Tokarczuk has never been one to let the facts get in the way of a good story. In her essay, Does Central European Literature Exist?, she recounts an anecdote about how her own region of Klotzkoland ended up in southwest Poland after the Second World War. The story goes that at the Yalta conference, where the Allied leaders divided up Europe, Stalin was leaning over the map and supporting himself on it with his thumb. His secretary, not daring to ask for the thumb to be moved, outlined it instead, accidentally seizing the territory for Poland. For Tokarczuk, this story hits on a deeper truth about Central Europe. She writes, It will probably be difficult for an islander to understand this permanent state of transience and indeterminacy. Natural boundaries, such as the seashore or great mountains, are arbitrary, but with us, boundaries are set at conference tables. In a series of vivid images, she pictures Central Europe as a mushroom that grows from the decay of the pre-war world, as a fertile volcano crater that occasionally erupts, or as the ovaries of the world, steadily producing talent that comes to fruition elsewhere. Until recently, the story of Stalin's thumb may have felt like a mostly 20th century story. But now, Even for islanders at the western edge of Europe, all eyes are once again on maps and on historical and linguistic borders. With me to discuss these borders and the connections between eastern and western Europe that form across them are Dr. Carolina Vantraba, a research fellow in German at All Souls College, Oxford, where she works on Thomas Mann, Franz Kafka and global literature, and Dr. Kasia Szymanska, Assistant Professor of Comparative Literature and Translation at Trinity College, Dublin whose research includes books on Tokarczuk, multilingualism, and Western fantasies about Eastern Europe during the Cold War. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you both so much for joining me. Carolina, you're dialing in from a European trip, and Kasia, you're working around the sleep cycles of a small baby, so I'm really glad that we could have this conversation. Normally, I'd start with a happier and a kind of more easygoing question, But under the circumstances, I feel I should just start by asking how you're both getting on and how you're feeling. How are you coping with living in the far west of Europe at a time like this? Thank you, Connor, for having us. I think the public sphere podcasts are a great way of connecting people and topics, especially at a time like this. It feels insane and it feels surreal to be working so far from our, well, hometowns, from our countries, especially at the moment when so much is happening at the border. There's an estimate of 2 million refugees, Ukrainian refugees, coming to Poland. It's not clear whether all of them will stay in Poland, but these are the numbers for now. At Trinity, we thought about Polish-Ukrainian relations in the past. Uh, This year I'm on maternity leave, so I feel like the curriculum will be revised. You know, it is being revised as we speak at an insane level, because previously when the war started in 2014, the first part of the conflict, we already experienced what was the highest wave of migration into an EU country from outside of the European Union. 
And that was economic migration at that time. But now what we are experiencing is definitely something more intense and something more heartbreaking, especially because Poland as a country as well had the experience of, you know, being attacked, being invaded. And I feel like there's a lot of solidarity, Polish-Ukrainian solidarity at the moment. Most of the Ukrainians are staying at houses of ordinary Polish people. We have friends, we have family members who are hosting Ukrainians at the moment. So it feels strange. And it also feels like a repeat of what used to be the kind of different geography before the Second World War, because those some of those territories used to belong to the Second Republic of Poland. So basically some of the territories in now, what is now Ukraine, used to be part of Poland. So it feels like this wave is sort of bringing those two nations together again, those two two peoples. Um, And on a more individual level, of course, that that also feels very poignant when, I mean, talking about the different (laughs) crisis, I myself went to Calais to a refugee camp a few years back. And now, of course, I'm (laughs) slightly grounded and unable to, to go and help myself. But it also kind of redefines our idea of what we are supposed to do now to be kind of committed, how to talk about this crisis and what to do. And I think that kind of ties with what we're going to explore now, because I feel like this idea of Europe is sort of expanding thanks to, unfortunately, but due to this this conflict as well. So that that is definitely something that lies, you know, at the center of our research, but also is very close to our hearts, I feel. Yeah, it's thrown up so much. I mean, for us here at the Western border of Europe, discussions of how many refugees to accommodate. There's a slightly moralistic stance in Ireland vis-a-vis the UK that we're more open and more welcoming, but compared to being right at the border and just this upheaval right on your doorstep, I think it's kind of unfathomable for us here. I know that that's interesting about Calais as well, because it has brought up these ideas of being civilized or European. There's a sort of sense that Ukrainian refugees are being treated differently than refugees from other conflicts in the past. Carolina, how are you? How are you getting on on a personal level? Yeah, a lot of what Kasia has said really resonates with me. I feel like I'm living with a sort of split brain where the half that is in the UK, where it's possible to just look at the news and be very worried, but then switch it off and get on with your work. The Polish part of my brain can't do that because nobody in Poland can do that. My partner, who is also Polish, his family is currently hosting seven Ukrainians and their dog. So the contrast between our life in Oxford and their life in Poland couldn't be greater. What you just said also troubles me a lot. So this contrast between how Poland is now stepping up to this task of welcoming so many people who need help and other crises which haven't stopped and other refugees who cannot count on that kind of support. That is also, I think, making me feel very uneasy. But I am really sort of, it's really heartening to see how in this crisis, the vast majority of people in Poland is trying to help and support the refugees. The really difficult part is that obviously nobody knows how long this is going to go for. And I think already we're seeing some deep systematic problems, because despite all of this goodwill from ordinary Poles, there isn't enough sort of systemic help or infrastructure to deal with the numbers of Ukrainians coming in. So yes, I'm sure like like both of you have just been following the news and at least for us, Kasia, we can look at the reporting in English and in Polish and, and, and sort of try to make sense of it. But there's, there's, there's no way to, to deal with this situation somehow. It's, it's really scary and worrying and there are no obvious solutions. Yeah, 
And that what you say about the kind of long term is definitely a contrast between being at the eastern border of Europe and the western border. You know that this is a very intense news cycle we're in here, but you do have the sense that hopefully if if some end comes to the conflict that here it'll be forgotten more quickly or fall down the newspaper pages more quickly than in Poland, where it's going to be, you know, it's just how we'll have such huge long-term ramifications. It is certainly a very frightening time. And our theme for this season of the public sphere is connections. And I suppose for both of you, both in your backgrounds and in your intellectual positions, you're forming these connections all the time between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, even in day-to-day life in the UK and Ireland, as you point out. But one way of bridging or maybe just complicating that divide is this idea of Central Europe. Kasia, can you maybe tell us a bit more about that concept? So there are different ideas around what Central Europe is. So there is no fixed term. I mean, not one that uh, all the historians would agree on. But here at Trinity, we teach something which is called Introduction to Central and Eastern European Studies. And for the sake of of this course, to kind of explain the name, we have to first discuss those kind of basic concepts. And the term which is used, especially in English, I think which is quite common in, I would say, media outlets, newspapers, although The Economist recently questioned it by saying, does Eastern Europe still exist? So this is what I'm talking about, is the idea of Eastern Europe. It has most strongly been used and solidified during the Cold War era. And of course, we have the image of the Iron Curtain, which kind of falls across the continent and divides the Eastern and Western Bloc. And, you know, that image has resonated throughout. Um, A very kind of powerful image coined by who was ultimately the Nobel Prize winner in literature, Churchill, right? This very powerful metaphor. But historically speaking, we could also talk about something which is different from Eastern Europe. So the idea of Central Europe. And already at that time in in the Cold War, we had a few champions of this idea of uh, Central Europe. That was, for example, Emilian Kundera, so a Czech writer, Timothy Gartonash, kind of calling for including some of the countries of the Eastern Bloc in the common heritage, the common European heritage, based on all sorts of uh, criteria, including religion. For example, there are Catholic countries versus uh, Eastern Orthodox countries and so on, based on also a series of strikes and demonstrations. So for example, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia at that point should be included into this common heritage of Central Europe rather than Eastern Europe because it rebels against the regime and so on. Uh, I feel like after the fall of communism in this part of Europe, the EU tried to promulgate the idea of East Central Europe or Central East Europe, which would kind of encompass the expansion, right? The eastward expansion of the EU and the newly admitted member states. And at that time, it was clear, to, for example, an English speaker that Eastern Europe was all those countries beyond the Iron Curtain, but how to kind of deal with this new kind of rearrangement of Europe after the fall of communism, where we can't no, can no longer talk about Cold War and, and the, the kind of Soviet sphere. Historians started thinking back and looking at, you know, the kind of Habsburg legacy. So for some, Central Europe also encompasses the countries which were under the Habsburg imperial influence, but also to some, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was a multi-ethnic and big state, including all sorts of religions, ethnicities, confessions, and so on. So there there are different kind of competing, let's say, theories of what Central Europe would mean. I think together with Karolina, when we taught a course called Looking East, Looking West, 
we also had to think about what Central Europe would mean in literary studies, right, and in cultural studies. And at that time, we taught a text by Olga Tokarczuk, what is Central European literature? And I think to us at that time, this concept wasn't very clear. It wasn't like clearly <laughs> delineated. I think we agreed that if we define Central European culture as culture which is based on migration and disrupted narratives, then we might as well think of modernist literature at large, right? So, so these were the kind of concerns that I think have to be addressed. Although, as I said now, especially in the English-speaking media, the, the idea of Eastern Europe is still being used. And that's, you know, the question whether it's like a relic of, of the communist times or whether it's just a very convenient, safe category of just lumping together all those different countries that are some sort of gray zone. They can be, you know, kind of imagined and as one amalgamated image for the sake of the kind of Western audience. Yeah, this, uh, what you point out about Tokarczuk's article, which you had both recommended to me and which I read in preparation for this, I had similar questions about whether the qualities she was ascribing to Central Europe, whether they were a bit vague, whether you could claim those in lots of different historical and geographical contexts. And Carolina, you're on a research trip as we speak that will include travels through Central Europe. How's that going and what is it that you're in search of there? Yes, interestingly, when I planned my trip, I didn't think of it as a Central European trip. I was, you know, I was just following all the archive that I haven't been able to visit because of the pandemic. But it so happens that it ends up taking in some of the most iconic countries in this sort of vague, blurry around the edges idea of Central Europe. So I'm currently in Switzerland and I will also be going to Germany and the Czech Republic or Czechia, as they want to be called now. And I think to come back to this article by Tokarczuk, to me what it shows is that every sort of region to assert itself requires some intense myth-making. And I think because of the way that history has affected Central and Eastern Europe, however defined, it's been a very traumatic history full of conflict and, as we've said, migrations and sort of big religious revolutions, religious conflicts. And I think this essay by Olga Tokarczuk is a symptom of, I think, a wider trend of trying to take all this historical experience of trauma and migration and change and make it into a sort of positive value that somehow is connected to intellectual depth and, as we've said, modernist aesthetics and the sort of seriousness of historical experience that we can then claim that we have and that, say, Western Europe doesn't have because of its comparatively more peaceful and prosperous history. And I think this is understandable why these narratives are created. But like both of you, I am quite sceptical about it. And I think the downside of this kind of myth-making is that it perpetuates this idea that there is something fundamentally different between Western Europe and Central or Eastern Europe. And that it's fundamentally different, not just because of historical circumstance, but because of some essential quality of the people and of the psyche and the sort of imagination. So I think all of these narratives risk entrenching those notions that we as people cannot really communicate or have trouble really understanding each other from one side of Europe to the next. And I think it's more helpful to, you know, think about those differences, about those historical circumstances and conditions which have meant that intellectual history and social history and cultural history in those different regions of Europe does look different. 
but I don't like this sort of overemphasis on some sort of innermost spiritual difference between peoples. We are also avoiding intentionally the term Middle Europa. So this is kind of the danger of this type of thinking, that there's something inherently different. Uh, Middle Europa is uh, kind of conceived um, you know, during Nazi Germany, right? So basically the justification of the eastward conquest in, in those lands, basically the idea that Central Europe to Middle Europa, which I think in German would resonate differently than in English, would be based on some sort of difference, right? So the idea that there's this those Slav tribes and Jewish people peoples living across the border and they're so inherently different and and inferior right to the germans that this sort of justifies the further expansion eastward so this is just one of the potential dangers of this um of what karina just mentioned this type of thinking i mean i study german literature and often i'm studying Austrian literature, which has its own nostalgia for this multilingual, multinational Habsburg realm, you know, it kind of has its own myth-making about how that was special and really never to be regained. And provinces like Galicia and Galician Jews, they crop up all the time in this sentimentalized way in, say, works by Viennese authors. As someone studying Austrian literature from Ireland, I hadn't given much thought to where Galicia is now or how those borders have changed, Galicia now, many parts of it being in Ukraine. That was one of the moments where I kind of was struck by how blinkered my view was. And Carolina, I think that's something that you bring up in your research a lot. I gather that your trip at the moment is working towards two book projects that you've got on the go, one about Thomas Mann and one about Franz Kafka, who are very canonical figures. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how you read them, whether you're bringing a different perspective, whether you're questioning how these texts have been read up to now. Yes. So let me start with Thomas Mann. With Mann, I'm particularly interested in disrupting this low culture, high culture divide that we often impose on literary production. Uh, and a writer like Mann in, in scholarship will almost always be unambiguously assigned to the upper peaks of high literature. And the reason why I think this is problematic is because, well, first of all, his books were bestsellers in their time and were read much more widely than you might imagine just looking at academic scholarship on them. And also even in modern times, and even some of his books that are deemed particularly inaccessible to the so-called general reader, they are still being read very widely and even develop a bit of a cult following. So the novel that I'm particularly interested in is The Magic Mountain, and my book looks at the non-academic reception of The Magic Mountain, with the caveat that I don't particularly like the word reception. No reader would think of themselves as performing an act of reception, <laughs> but very often reception studies close this experience of reading into terms that are not really recognisable to readers themselves. So part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to find an, a different language of talking about what it is that readers do and what we as scholars can learn from them. My book about Kafka in some ways is similar. So the starting point is also looking at Kafka's readers over the years in various places. The big difference is that my Thomas Mann book is addressed to other scholars. So the goal is to persuade other scholars that it's worth looking at readers of Mann outside of the academy in the firm belief that we can learn a lot from them about what the book is actually about. The book about Kafka will be addressed to a wider readership. So I am now trying to enter a dialogue with those readers that I'm writing about. And also with Kafka in particular, this idea of Central Europe comes back again because 
I am writing for the English speaking market, but I am writing from the perspective of somebody who, had I been born in Kafka's times, would have been his compatriot. <laughs> I come from Krakow, so like Prague, it used to lie on the northern edge of the Habsburg Empire. So I think my relationship to Kafka's work is somewhat different because of that. But interestingly, in some ways, both of us have ended up in Oxford somewhat unexpectedly because Oxford has the biggest collection of surviving manuscripts by Kafka. So this is part of the more personal story that I'm trying to tell in the book. So how books and people move across space and time and what that changes in how people read books. And part of what I'm trying to do on this research trip is to look at how Kafka is remembered in various places that have laid a claim to his legacy. So, you know, is he a German writer? Is he a specifically Prague writer? Is he a Jewish writer? Does he belong to a putative canon of Jewish literary history? You know, what, what changes in how we understand Kafka if we are invested in one of those readings? And this is particularly timely because in two years' time we will be celebrating the centenary of his death. That idea of travel, Kasia, crossing borders and observing firsthand, that relates to your research into these Cold War fantasies about Eastern Europe that arose in the West. Can you tell us a bit more about that or you know, what's going on there? I am interested in this kind of divide between the East and West during the Cold War, but in particular how it influenced perception and the traffic, literary traffic across those two regions. So I am very much interested in literary travelogues to non-existent countries, which were invented during the Cold uh, War. So countries such as Havs, Slaka, Orsinia, Bulgaria, which you wouldn't find on any European map. But at the same time, some writers such as Ursula Le Guin, Malcolm Bradbury or John Morris fantasized about those travels to those non-existent countries. And I was very much struck by how at that time, travel was such a big topic because of course travel and movement was uh, was restricted and to someone from our generation where well we grew up in kind of unified europe free movement of people right it was taken for granted and that wasn't the case in the previous era and that also sparked this idea of writing those travel logs but also traveling to eastern europe as part of some sort of explorative excursion so we are we may not be in contact with those people from across the kind of iron curtain but at the same time there were a few cultural institutions which sent emissaries to to those countries and then those travelers brought back very groundbreaking and revolutionary testimonies about what the life is out there and uh, besides the literary travelogues i was thinking of including travel materials also proliferated by for example, the British Council, but also Congress of Cultural Freedom, the CIA-sponsored institution, some literary magazines, which also published reports from Eastern Europe, but also popular travel guidebooks. So there were some travelers. It was much more difficult to get a passport and travel both ways, let's say, or to get a visa, let's say. But there were some private travelers who did go to different countries. And at that time, there was a very popular series of travel guidebooks called Fodor's Eastern Europe. And I was also looking at the kind of recurring narrative mechanisms in both literary works and those travel guidebooks of exoticizing Eastern Europe, but also homogenizing it. This idea of Eastern Europe, I feel, wasn't only 
you know, solidified through political and, let's say, economic forces. But I feel like the kind of cultural and literary aspect is very much overlooked. So what sort of texts were read, what sort of texts were circulated, what images, especially in popular culture, spy novels, you know, the James Bond series, John Le Carré, you know, all, all this is very much unexplored at the, at the moment. And on, on a more personal level, why I even started thinking about it was through a series of <laughs> mishaps <laughs> at Oxford dinners <laughs> and kind of, you know, there is Sally Rooney's conversation with friends and maybe I should publish like a very boring academic version uh, conversations with Oxford colleagues. <laughs> and basically the sort of questions I usually get asked when I say that I'm from Poland. For example, one very posh, affluent historian, when he heard that I'm from Poland, in a very conspiratorial whisper said, don't tell everyone, but my parents were communists. And I felt, you know, what really struck me about this was, yes, was, was that it was, first of all, uh, three decades later, you know, it's very unrooted still in this thinking. So for him, the Cold War was a fact of life. For me, it's some sort of um, kind of remote fantasy because, I mean, I hear about communism mostly through my parents. I didn't live in, you know, the communist era. So my source of information is by hearsay or by other materials. And then I felt this kind of image of the Cold War is casting a really long shadow. So as I said, we are talking about three decades later, but for this historian, the first kind of connotation with Poland was kind of the communist system. Another thing is that, as I mentioned, he's a very posh Oxford academic, so there's already a different level of fantasizing inscribed there. So my parents were communists. So this type of Western maybe fashion or trend in being fascinated in this region and in this in this kind of system of thinking, with different framework or different paradigm of thinking. I think that was the first <laughs> and the first anecdote. Of course, I also got a lot of questions about, oh, you're from Poland. My gra- great grandfather was Serbian, and this is, I think, something that would never Never happened in Eastern Europe. I don't think we would ever make this connection, but for some reason, this image is so homogenous and at the same time unexplored that I felt that there must be something to it. There must have been something more in the way it was reported, it was described, that people started, you know, lumping those different countries into one amalgamated image. So this is how it all started for me. It it is a very personal take on, on what was happening. And at the same time, in 2018, uh, Pavel Pavlikovsky uh, produced his uh, amazing film, uh, Cold War. And pa- Pavlikovsky, also uh, an, an Oxford-based <laughs> film director, he must have had the same types of conversations, I imagine. <laughs> and then he made this very self-conscious film about the Cold War, which also tells us a lot about the expectations and different frameworks within which we can talk about Eastern Europe. How can we make an aesthetically pleasing film about something which already is painted by this very heavy political image of the region from 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 that era. I think if it were a Sally Rooney novel, the person at the dinner would probably have told you, tell everyone I'm a communist. But, you know, other than that, that sounds about right. And one of the things that I really value in what you're both saying and both of your styles of research is bringing in that personal element. And I think something that comes across in what you've described, even this thing of these kind of mix-ups, You mentioned at the beginning that you can both read the news in English and in Polish, and that already strikes me as something quite different than this monolingual view of the world that you might be getting if you're born and bred in the region of Oxford or elsewhere in the Anglosphere as this place where it's quite normal to be monolingual. 
you know, and you're both coming from multilingual backgrounds. You, Carolina, as a researcher in German studies, and Kasia, you've published widely on translation and multilingualism. How does that aspect of language and living a multilingual life, how does that come into your research? I think for both of us, because we both were born and grew up in Poland, the status of foreign languages in Polish schools is much higher than in the UK. There's a widespread feeling that if you want to succeed in life in Poland, you have to learn languages. And, you know, this is borne out by what we've been talking about, those inequalities in Europe that still persist and flows of migrations that tend to go westward rather than eastward. So it never really felt to me like languages were really a choice I consciously made. You just have to learn English when you go to school and then you have to learn another language. And in my school, the only other option was German. This is also very typical in Poland. This is by far the most popular second foreign language after English. So when I was applying to study in Oxford, German was really the only other foreign language I knew well enough to be able to apply. I sort of still feel the consequences of that to this day, because in the UK, if you choose to study German at school, it's seen as some sort of special, unusual choice. But what it meant was that I remained really interested in other languages, and it always felt to me like it's very constricting to just focus on one language and sort of use that as a criterion to pick all of your research topics and all of the texts that you work with. So that always bothered me when I was studying German as an undergraduate and a graduate student. As you know, Connor, because I think I had something to do with the fact that you now look at Tokarczuk as well. We did, um, yeah. <laughs> I just always felt like it was very limiting to just always go by this language criterion. So I've kept up some other languages and I've picked up new ones along the way. And because this was just always something that made sense to me and I always enjoyed learning languages, at some point I decided I will just start using them in my research and I won't let the circumstances stop me. But this is certainly still a kind of research that is seen as something unusual and quite radical. <laughs> but to me, that's really all backwards. To me, what is natural is to just read widely and then try to find as much as you can about those texts from various cultures. And also, if you look at the sort of general situation in Europe, but also around the world, and especially in a historical perspective, multilingualism is the norm and has been the norm. And again, if we come back to this mythical region of Central Europe, this has also been a very multilingual region for for many, many centuries. So my sort of pet peeve in German studies is that I, I find it really difficult to do German studies without thinking, for example, about the relationships, cultural, social, historical, between Germany and Poland. And for so many centuries, various parts of German and Polish territories, you know, changed hands, Poles and Germans coexisted, sometimes in open conflict, sometimes more or less peacefully. And again, a writer like Kafka shows exactly how this monolingual paradigm just isn't enough to capture the richness and diversity of European culture. So I think all of this was somehow in the back of my mind when I started out. And with time, I've embraced it more. And this is now really how I do all of my research. And I think perhaps it's similar for Kasia. With Kasia, your emphasis on translation also and how literary cultures never develop in isolation. Yes, very much so. And I also think that societies never do. And um, Connor, you mentioned that Oxford is very monolingual. I don't agree at all. <laughs> I agree that maybe from the academic perspective, 
but at the same time, the city itself, experiencing a big influx of students and people coming from different countries is very multilingual. And I feel the UK and Ireland are as well. It might not translate into the kind of choices at the institutional level which are made. But when we think about Ireland and the UK, the second most widely spoken language is Polish, right? And it's not even Irish, right, in, in Ireland. So you already have a kind of element of multilingualism inscribed there. For some citizens, you know, multilingualism is just bread and butter. So Polish might not be taught at universities, but at the same time, recently the Irish DAL passed a new reform on language policy in Ireland, whereas the new kind of community languages will be now taught in, in Irish high schools and it will be possible to, for example, take a living cert in Polish or Lithuanian or Portuguese or Chinese, right? So in some ways, I feel like Poland is less multilingual and multi-ethnic than it used to be, because we might think about learning languages as part of kind of aspiration, right? So we, we want to study those languages because we want to learn about Western in particular, right, cultures. Whereas Poland might be more homogenous than some of the kind of Western societies. But of course, what Karolina mentioned is also very close to my heart. I also work on translation and multilingualism. And my recent project, which is just an edited volume, will collect different essays by both translators and academics on the global reception of Olga Tokarczuk. So I feel like this is also another theme which Karolina and I share. So I feel like the most intimate and tender readers are translators <laughs> in some ways, because they have to kind of process the text without avoiding any of the kind of difficult phrases they really have to engage with the text on a very intimate level and I was also interested in how for example Tokarczuk although being a very central European as, as we mentioned a writer can resonate in different local contexts across the world so for example when translated into Hindi how that resonates with Indian animal rights so this is what the translator into Hindi will be telling us about how you know different countries kind of digest Tokarczuk in a different way and I felt she became some sort of global phenomenon thanks to this combination of being quite universal in some of her topics, but also very historically situated and being able to sort of promote those central European themes. Just maybe one more thing about multilingualism, which I think is really important. I think both of us, being Poles in the UK, have become acutely aware of how some types of multilingualism are really prized by society and some are not. We have both worked with bilingual children in British schools who grew up speaking Polish but are also fully fluent in English. And we, we really witnessed firsthand how many of them are almost ashamed of Polish or just not really used to ever speaking Polish anywhere outside of their homes. And at the same time, you know, they were learning German or French or Spanish at school. And that was sort of held up as like a useful, good, valuable language and a serious A-level. And you can go off and study at university. But the fact that they were already fluent in a, you know, a language that is seen as extremely difficult by most speakers of English, that was somehow not valued at all. And this is not unique to Polish. You know, it would be the same story with home languages, as people sometimes call them of students with Asian background or African background. And somehow I think both of us are positioned between those two poles because we work in the field of modern languages where our multilingualism is valued and seen as an academic asset. But at the same time, because of our close connection to Polish, we, we can really appreciate the sort of injustice and difficulty of some languages being seen as not as valuable and prestigious as others. 
a last question that maybe links to that. What are your hopes very briefly for the future of Central Europe? You know, are there changes that you'd like to see happen in the UK and Ireland in terms of understanding of Central and Eastern Europe? I think especially the current conflict, unfortunately, I mean, kind of paradoxically, but might contribute to this deeper understanding of, of the region. And it was interesting to see on Twitter, for example, when all of a sudden some of the departments started looking for non-existent Russian and Ukrainian academics, basically to comment on the situation. And I feel like it might, paradoxically speaking, reignite this interest in the region, which also was much stronger during the Cold War period. And I feel the kind of Cold War parallel is, of course, it is very oversimplified, but this kind of colonial discourse as well plays, you know, first fiddle, because when we think about the sphere of influences, this is a very much a Cold War concept. So now this is the NATO versus the Russian Federation, but maybe kind of acknowledging the, the voices of the individual countries and the right for statehood and self-determination and so on might contribute to that uh, to that understanding and just individual experiences of people who go there to, to help. I know there are a lot of volunteers on the border, a lot of colleagues and friends helping. So that, that, that might be one, you know, a positive outcome, a kind of blessing in disguise. Otherwise, I mean, I was hoping that the European project <laughs> will make those distinctions and those divisions fade out. It's not necessarily the case. We saw after Brexit, for example, a lot of xenophobia and a lot of quite aggressive attitudes toward Eastern Europeans and, and Central Europeans, Central Eastern Europeans. And Brexit itself, right, the, the result of the referendum made me more skeptical about the positive and the kind of optimistic scenario for this kind of mutual understanding. But maybe hopefully at the individual level, even if it's not backed up by some sort of institutional drive, maybe the kind of more individual stories will testify to a kind of deeper and more profound understanding of the region and those connections between the two. Yes, I think I agree with everything Kasia has said. And well done for all of us for not using the word Brexit for so long in this conversation. <laughs> but yes, I think Brexit has made it clear to all, also on this institutional level in the UK how much we have lost already by those years of, for example, not recognizing the cultures of people with migrant background who live in the UK. And I think most people would agree that this is one of the indirect reasons that have allowed this hostility towards the idea of migration to rise in the UK. This just absolute neglect and hostility towards cultural diversity. So I hope that, again, on an institutional level, this can be taken up now. And I think I can see already, even in my little Oxford bubble, that people are more interested in, say, Poland on, on a sort of cultural level than even 10 years ago when I first arrived here. And I think both Kasia and I try to use some of those big names that have recently gained some recognition, like Olga Tokarczuk, to also make people excited about other voices and to also deconstruct some of those less than helpful myths, such as this idea of a homogenous and fundamentally different Eastern Europe. Thank you both so much for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Connor. Thank you. The Hublic Sphere is a podcast produced by early career researchers at the Trinity Long Room Hub. For more information on this podcast episode, follow our Twitter account at Hublic Sphere, where you will be directed to our show notes and website. The second season of The Hublic Sphere is produced by Connor Brennan, Orla Darling, Lisa Doyle, Courtney Helen Gryle, Tom Hegley, Lorraine McAvoy and Alan O'Neill. With many thanks for our jingle to Angus O'Loughlin.